Bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this fantastic privilege, this honor of gathering together as family in the unity of the faith. Father, thank you so much for giving us said faith by grace. Father, thank you for instilling in us the true gospel of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and all aspects of it. And thank you for holding our nose to the grindstone, so to speak, Father, and keeping us honest about it uh, and making sure that we're doing and bringing glory to you in the end with our presentation of it. Father, we pray for those that are sick in our congregation that can't be with us this evening. Uh, we pray also for those that are still lost in this world, that they be humbled. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and make a, an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this evening's message, what is repentance and who uh, gets to define it? Obviously, this is a play off of our last series, which was what is good and who gets to define it. Um, very important uh, set of lessons uh, in front of us. I'm very excited. I hope you are as well. But before we do that, um, our final analysis uh, from Holy Scripture on our previous series titled What is Good and Who Gets to Define It was quite simple. Up here on the board, what is good? To love like Christ does. That's good. That's good. To love like Christ does. To abide in a love that cannot help but express itself and to be honest about those who receive it and those who don't. That's good. Calling a you know, proverbial spade a spade. Uh, understanding how Christ loved and understanding those who accept said love, those who abide in it, and those who don't. That's good. Who gets to define it? Obviously, as we saw in great detail, God does. His fingerprints are all over his creation and through the various special revelations of himself, including his manifestation as Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So God gets to decide uh, what is good. Now, I want to bring back into light another final point from that wonderful series as our launching pad for the series we are about to undertake up here on the board on loving. The greatest seed we can ever sow is the gospel seed. This seed is the very expression of God's love, and therefore, when sown righteously, an expression of our own love. And we looked at John 3.16, Ephesians 5.25-27, and 1 John 4.19 in support of that statement on the board. Now, I want you to take that um, statement or that principle on the board and marry it to a very familiar passage. Go to Matthew 28.18. Matthew 28.18. So the greatest seed we can ever sow is the gospel, and it really is an expression of God's love. Remember, God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son. Matthew 28:18. Now marry that with this passage. And we've been here several times, uh, I don't even know how many times, many times over the last couple of years for obvious reasons, Matthew 28:18 and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth go therefore and make disciples of all the nations 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, we call these famous words of Jesus the Great Commission, for obvious reasons, I hope, at this juncture. But that's the Great Commission. And the Spirit wants you to think in terms of the point on the board that the greatest seed we can ever sow is that gospel that Jesus Christ is alluding to here with the Great Commission. As we've learned in the past, this is the primary reason we are left here on earth uh, after we are given saving faith. So why are we here? The net net of it is to evangelize people, to spread the good news about Jesus Christ. This endeavor cannot be understated, frankly. Every aspect of our lives, um, if we're to function in this thing that is really good, which is to love like Christ, ought to be coordinated or oriented to the Great Commission. That's really our um, joy that's set before us. The fact that we're left here and we're able to partake in any saving of any soul is really an ultimate gift in time. Yet I fear that most believers um, do take it for granted, um, that do understate the importance of the Great Commission in their lives. And so I fear that most believers do just that and as they seek to appeal to the sensibilities of mere men and women. And I think that's the genesis or the impetus behind this new series that we're on, Understanding Repentance, because there seems to be this fading desire in contemporary Christianity to even talk about repentance or even push it off until after so-called salvation as if it's not part of the discussion from the get-go. And you know, I was thinking about that because it's not a, quote, show of grace if you refuse to present the gospel properly because you might offend someone. That's not a show of grace. You're not being nice. You're not doing Jesus any favors. You're actually doing a disservice to Jesus Christ. Up here on the board... You know what? Because the gospel offends. Isn't that what the Bible has taught us? The gospel offended just about everyone. So much so that the author of it, the author and perfecter of our faith even, was hung on a cross, murdered. That's how offensive it was. And that was from the so-called righteous people. That wasn't murderers, you know, the, the riffraff or the dregs of society. That was the so-called uppities of society, the ones that were highly regarded. They're the ones who murdered him. That was the mainstream. So what do you think now? The gospel offends. The gospel is the most offensive news you can give an unbeliever still abiding in their flesh. Particularly an arrogant one. 1 Peter 2, 7, 8. An arrogant person will take the free ticket to heaven, but will always refuse the call to repentance that Jesus demanded. An arrogant person is always looking for ways to add things in their little goodie basket. Oh, I get a free ticket? Sure, I'll take that. What do I have to do with this little prayer? Okay, I'm good. With very little or no consideration 
on the true definition of repentance at all. And these so-called evangelists and these pastors and these ministries are basically peddling a gospel that's minus a discussion of repentance at all. Which is literally the antithesis of Jesus' own gospel, his own words. And John the Baptist, and Paul, and all the other disciples, and apostles. But yet nobody wants to have the conversation. That's what is going on in contemporary Christianity. And my fear is that it infects all of us. Because it's not in vogue. As a matter of fact, it's offensive to speak the gospel that Jesus spoke of. Even from behind so-called ordained pulpits. Go to 1 Peter 2.7. Again, the gospel is the most offensive news you can give an unbeliever still abiding in their flesh, particularly an arrogant one. An arrogant person will take a free ticket to heaven but will always refuse the call to repentance that Jesus demanded. Therefore, as Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, verse 7, 1 Peter 2, 7, this precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. The Word of God says repent and have faith. Repent and believe. And it's a problem for these people. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they are disobedient to the Word. And to this doom they were also appointed. Again, the point on the board, the Gospel offends. So, as we venture forth in this series titled, What is Repentance and Who Gets to Define It? I want you to remember why, why the Spirit has us doing this very thing. And remember that you have been called as believers to fulfill the Great Commission. And remember that if the gospel you're presenting to an unbeliever isn't, is not offensive to their flesh, then you're not presenting the true gospel of Jesus Christ. If the gospel that you're presenting to an unbeliever is not offensive to their flesh, then you're not presenting the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see a bunch of different presentations of the gospel. For example, one out of the mouth of Jesus himself. And when you read it with me, keep an eye on what is not present in His words and make the effort in your own soul to reconcile what is not being said explicitly. For example, by grace through faith you are saved. Do you think that every time we present the gospel, those exact words have to come out? Do you think that every account in the Bible that describes someone evangelizing another person, including Jesus Christ himself, included in exhortation or an exhortation even, or a dissertation on justification by faith like Paul had to do in Romans? No. Not at all. Does it make it any less the gospel? Not at all. and then begin to ferret out biblical implications 
uh, in his words as we do this. Go to Luke 13, 5. Luke 13, 5. So, as you know, as is obvious in the Bible, if you've been reading your Bible, uh, especially the Gospels, you know that Jesus Christ talked to a lot of people. And he explained himself to a lot of people. And he came to seek and to save that those who were lost, right? That was his main reason. Look what he says in verse 5 of Luke 13. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent. Do you understand? Unless you repent, you cannot be saved. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Remember, there's not, there's not more than one gospel in the Bible, folks. There's more than one context of it in the Bible, but there's not more than one gospel in the Bible. And when Jesus Christ says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish, you ought to think real long and real hard about how you present the gospel. Because you might run across an arrogant individual that's stuck on the idea of repentance. And we'll get into the definition as we roll on here. So he says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling the parable, this parable, a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and it did not, and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And hopefully you see the visual. Uh, this was obviously pointing towards uh, God's chosen people, Israel at the time. Cut it down. In other words, uh, why are you being so patient? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir. For this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. That's called divine patience, my friends. And what was he being patient for? How do we start off in, the, in verse uh, 5? Unless you repent. I'm waiting. You're not going to grow any fruit until you repent. I can't save you until you repent. And so he gave a parable to prove this thing. And so often in Scripture you see the concept of repentance tied directly with God's patience because he's patiently waiting. It reminds me of, uh, uh, I think it's Romans 2, maybe verse 5-ish, where he says, I'm waiting. Do you not understand that God's been patiently waiting for you on your repentance? Have we forgotten so quickly? that we're going to start judging one another, this whole thing? As we'll continue to see throughout this series, Jesus Christ was very adamant about the need for repentance. But as the Spirit will surely shine light on for us, contemporary Christianity, and I put that in quote, contemporary Christianity's definition of repentance has been so watered down that it is merely a passing consideration dare I say, a mere mental recognition that we sin. I mean, all you have to say is, dude, have you ever sinned? I've sinned. Do you think you're a sinner? I'm a sinner. Okay, let's move on. 
That's not repentance. That's just recognizing something. You might as well say, is this beeswax? Bert's bees? Yeah, it is. Do you see it? I do. That's not repentance the way the Bible talks about repentance. That's certainly not repentance that Jesus was talking about. Dare I say, a mere mental recognition is what is being peddled in today's Christianity. And in some cases, it is, it is even taught that repentance is somewhat optional after a person is supposedly saved. However, as we'll see, Jesus and his apostles would have never taught such garbage. To them, the very essence and overwhelming sphere of sin that we are all born into demands a biblical repentance. We're born into the, the sovereignty. I've taught you this. The sovereignty, the very sphere of sin. And so, the whole man, not just his recognition of something, the whole man is entrapped in the domain of sin when he is born. He's enslaved to it. Therefore, the whole man must repent from it. We're not talking about some flippant response. Some, oh yeah, I guess I am a sinner. Have you ever lied? Yep, then you're a sinner. Oh yeah, I guess I am a sinner. That's not biblical repentance. So the whole man, in this sense, must repent from it. And that's what you learn when you read the Bible. So as with our previous series titled, What is Good and Who Gets to Define It? We have, What is Repentance and Who Gets to Define It? I was just thinking about it. As you can imagine, for the Spirit to stop us in our tracks and return us to the topic of repentance, this congregation either needs another dose of Holy Scripture to get it straight, or maybe even we need a little bit of a wake-up call. I don't know. Maybe in all our evangelizing, we've sort of gotten a little stale. I don't know. I just know that he has us on it. But there's always a reason. In any case, from what I understand from the Spirit so far, he is really intent on installing the proper definition of repentance in you, as is the case in so many ways. In all of our studies, if you haven't realized over the years, it's when we get our definitions correct that everything else sort of irons out. It's when you have definitions wrong and you try to build something, you know. It doesn't build properly. It's an unstable infrastructure, especially when they're baseline things like repentance. So again, from what I understand, he's really intent on installing a proper definition of repentance in all of us. Why? Because it's quite likely some or all of us still don't possess it yet. I mean, I feel pretty comfortable with it now. I'm sure some of you do as well. But someone out there is probably not comfortable with it. Probably doesn't totally lambano, possess the right definition yet. Something's missing. You haven't seen the right scripture yet to really drive it home so that you're convicted of it when you present the gospel. So it's possible some of you still don't possess it yet, even though the spirit of, of repentance was placed in you at salvation. 
And as a result, it's possible that when you're out evangelizing people, you're missing a fundamental piece to your approach. Now, the key difference with true versus false repentance, let's put it that way, because there is such a thing as a garbage repentance. It's quite simple. And I'll use a couple of words that the late R.C. Sproul used um, to help us out up here on the board. Attrition in theology, and this is not what you would call in, you know, in military terms, the, the attrition means to fall out. You can't make the training or something like that. But in theology, it means something slightly different. Uh, attrition versus contrition. These are the two words that Sproul used to use, and I liked it, so I'm sharing it this way. True repentance is an act of contrition, not attrition. Contrition is from contrite. And that's the Latin is to be worn out, ground to pieces. Do you understand? That's what a contrite heart means. Take like a millstone, pretend you're a kernel of corn, and start spinning it. That's what it means to be contrite. That's contrition. Versus attrition. The Latin for that is an abrasion or a scraping to rub one thing against another. It's not a grinding down to a nub. It's not a smashing into pieces. It's a irritation. That's attrition. And as we'll see in Psalm 51, 17, 34, 18, Isaiah 66, 12, Romans 10, 10, 1 John 1 as a whole, these things will lend themselves to this point on the board. In theology, true repentance springs from a contrite heart. If it's not contrition, you don't have real repentance, in other words. This is the distinction that we make in theology. So in theology proper, true repentance springs from a contrite heart. And it includes three things. The mind, the heart, and the will of man. The mind, the heart, and the will of man. That's what's involved in true repentance. Not just one or even two of the three I just mentioned. In other words, all faculties of a person are involved in true repentance, a.k.a. the whole man. Is it not a whole man problem if you're enveloped in the sovereignty of sin? Is that not a whole man problem? All right, here's an analogy for you to help you understand the point on the board. A little boy gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar. You know, mom's not looking. He shrieks and jumps back, saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Please don't punish me. But the reality is that he's only sorry because he got caught. And he knows there's certain punishment in view. That's what we call attrition. Fear of punishment. That's very different from the child who says, I'm sorry, I know it's wrong. I'm sorry I disappointed you. That's a contrite heart. That's what we call contrition. A good parent isn't, doesn't want to rule with an iron fist. Doesn't want to rule their children just by, dis, by punishment. You only do these things because you're afraid of being punished. What a 
good parent wants is the child to decide for themselves to have a contrite heart and know when they've done wrong and self-adjust and self-realize. Mind, heart, and will. And will to do something different. That's what true repentance is. It's contrition. Not a fear of some punishment. I mean, that even goes so far as to say the person who says, well, I'll believe in, I guess I'll believe this thing because I don't want to go to that fiery place. What do they know about what they're talking about? That's attrition. What about sin? What about recognizing your sinfulness? What about repenting from that? That's not part of that discussion. That's attrition. That's a person who just doesn't want to be punished. That's not true repentance. That's the point. That's what we learn in the Bible as we read it. You want to know what true contrition looks like? True repentance? I I believe, don't quote me, I believe it's Psalm 51. David. Heart was broken to pieces. Why? Because he sinned. Because he sinned. His heart was broken. Do you understand? He wasn't the kid who goes, please don't punish me. His heart wasn't broken because he was going to get punished. His heart was broken because you know what? God said he was a man after his own heart. God's heart's broken over sin. Do you understand? That's a heart issue. That's not, uh, I don't want to go to hell. (laughs) So I think I'll believe in this Jesus guy. People need to be brought to their knees with the gospel truth. Not sold. I know some of you are salespeople out there. I was in sales too. Big deal. Not sold some bill of goods. (laughs) There's a huge difference between attrition and contrition. And that's the first thing you have to understand. If you're going to start talking about repentance, you need to understand the difference. Because this is what the Bible has to say about repentance. True repentance is an act of contrition not attrition. Contrition is from contrite. It means to be worn out, ground to pieces versus attrition, which is abrasion, scraping to rub one thing against another. Let's look at the scripture now. Go to Psalm 5117. Psalm 5117. You need to understand this, my friends. Psalm 51:17 Some of you need to forget everything you th- everything you thought you knew about repentance. Just forget it. Seriously. You're probably going to be better off if you just forget it because a lot of you have a bogus definition. I know it for a fact. Insert it into your soul. Psalm 51:17 The sacrifices of God are a broken heart or excuse me, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, God has favor for contrition, for a contrite heart, a heart that is busted down and repentant, a heart that hates and despises and is broken up about the very 
presence of sin in their lives. And do not forget that just because you've been delivered from the penalty of sin does not mean that you're not in the very presence of sin still, because you are. Anybody not sin today? Don't even dare. Don't even bother. Right? There's a reason why it's, it, you don't like it anymore if you're saved. There's a reason why you have a broken heart about that thing. It's because you've been made new. And your new creature hates it. Go to Psalm 34, 18. Psalm 34, 18. And that, my friends, is not just a mental issue, is it? When's the last time you wept over sin? I mean, really wept over sin. I'm not saying you go running around because God knows as much as we sin, all we'd be, be basket cases. I'm talking about over a serious sin where it bothered you so much you wept over it. That's contrition. Now, there are various degrees, obviously, but that's what true repentance looks like. Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Do you see it? The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's contrition. Ground down to pieces. Those are the ones He saves. Ground down over what? What else is there to be ground down over except sin? We're sinners and we continue to sin and we're awful. And we look in the mirror and say, we're just awful. And it's awful because I don't know about you, but all I want to do is please the Lord. It seems like some days I don't do anything like it. Some days all I can do is please myself. And then at the end of the day, I'm like, oh. Those are probably the days I weep. I'm like, oh, man. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. That is the gospel, if you really want to see it in so many words. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. That in itself is a real small package of the gospel. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Let me get this straight. You mean if I'm repentant, I'm crushed, I'm contrite, He'll save me? Yeah. That's the gospel in a nutshell in, in one presentation form. Go to Isaiah 66, 2. Isaiah 66, 2. A person who's happily carrying on in sin uh, cannot be saved. I mean happily. That doesn't have a repentance somehow. God cannot save that person because they're not willing yet. That's the point. Now, I'm not saying there's perfect repentance. The Bible doesn't speak about perfect repentance after salvation or even during. But there has to be some repentance there. That's what the Bible says. Isaiah 66, 2. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord, 
But to this one I will look, in other words, I will regard. Who? Who does he have regard for? To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's who. When's the last time you presented the gospel and someone trembled? Oh, you out there trying to pitch it like a sales pitch. Are we all about the numbers now? Is this about numbers? Is this about quantity or quality? What is this about? Because all I know is that few make it through the narrow gate. That says oodles to me. God's about quality. That's why few find it. Because frankly, how many people are contrite? How many people uh, respect the sovereign God of the universe? Enough to be contrite in His presence. That's the starting point of the Gospel. Not some coin that you flip and hit somebody in the forehead and go, hey, when you pick that up, say a little prayer and you're good to go. Are you a sinner? Gee, I don't know. Have you ever lied? I have. See, you're a sinner. Good. Uh Now here. Say this little ditty right here. And you're good. (laughs) That's a sales pitch. Do you see which kind of person God is looking to indwell? To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Do you see what kind of person God is looking to indwell? Again, the point on the board, attrition versus contrition. True repentance is an act of contrition, not attrition. Contrition is from contrite to be worn out, ground to pieces. Attrition, abrasion, scraping, to rub one thing against another. Go to Romans 10.10. Romans 10.10. We're talking about a whole person here, my friends. Repentance involves the whole person. Romans 10, verse 10. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Confession requires contrition, which is the basis for true repentance. Go to 1 John 1.1. 1 John 1.1. You can confess. I mean, there are a lot of people that go into a little booth and confess their sins to some wacko with a collar. No, I'm serious. That's considered confession. You can confess, but if, if that's just all you're doing and you're rubbing your little necklace or whatever and you think God's pleased with that, that's not confession. That's a joke. That's a sales pitch. That's satanic. That's a different gospel from a different spirit. 
that talks about a different Jesus. And it's not our Jesus. That's the point. Our Jesus said, repent. <laughs> With no, no strings attached. You have to repent. It's not an option. I don't want people that aren't humble enough to give up the self-life, that thing that you were born in, that your flesh loves. What am I going to do with that? I can't save that. I don't want to save that. 1 John 1.1 1, 1. I hope you mean, know what I mean by I don't want to save that. 1 John 1.1 1, 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. It's not thinking about the sovereignty of God here, because that's what John's getting at. Do you know who we're dealing with here? This is the sovereign God of the universe. This is overwhelming. This is mind-blowing. You're talking about standing before the sovereign God of the universe in your sin. And if you're not contrite in those circumstances, then I can't save you yet. Let's go. Verse 3. We have seen and have heard. We proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. As I've taught you in the past, this confession that John is speaking of is a lifelong function of a repentant heart given at salvation. This confession that John is speaking of is a lifelong function of a repentant heart that is given at salvation. In other words, the whole man is involved in true repentance, which is why it must be the new creature that drives confession of sin. Your flesh could care less about sin. It likes the sin. It has no intent on confessing. It doesn't even care. It has no desire to repent. It likes sin. It lives in sin. It's still under the sovereignty of sin. It's not contrite at all, but the new creature is. The new creature despises sin and wants to turn away or repent from it. Mind, heart, and will. Mind, heart, and will. And that is the point that the Spirit's driving home right now at the very beginning of this series, there is a difference between attrition and contrition. True repentance is an act of contrition. 
And think of the kid in the cookie jar if you have to. If that's what drives it home, think of that. One, one instance, the kid just didn't, you know, was, I don't want to get punished. The other one was true repentance. Contrition. There's a difference. Before we take a more structured approach to this topic, let's just quickly review the big picture angle the Spirit's taking here, and afterwards we'll slow down a bit and settle back into our series. Again, so far, this has been a little, let's call it a teaser trailer. So I don't think we are close at all to seeing all of what the Spirit has to say on this topic. Excuse me. We started off this evening with Jesus' words up here on the board, Luke 13, 5. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Yeah. And they told the parable. Thank God for God's patience while he waits on you to repent. Given the obvious nature of Jesus' words here, ask yourself, is it upsetting to your soul that he doesn't mention faith or justification or some other words we see used in the Bible that relate to the gospel? Is it upsetting to you that every gospel presentation doesn't use the exact same words? If so, why? If not, why not? The truth is that we need to understand that Jesus and his disciples were men just like us. And they used language in the same way we do, even today, efficiently. Imagine if every sentence you ever said or every explanation about anything required you to draw out the, every definition of every word you've used. Besides becoming a circular argument along the way, you, your sentences would be obnoxiously long, right? Right? I mean, that'd be ridiculous. So we, we speak efficiently, right? If it's understood, if it's implied, you understand that this is lip balm. When I say my Burt's Bees, do I have to say it's Burt's Bees lip balm? It's Burt's Bees lip No, I'm just saying my Burt's Bees. How about you just disgrace Burt by saying, call it a chapstick? Different brand, right? But if I say chapstick, you know exactly what it is, don't you? Because I want to communicate efficiently. What makes you think that they weren't the same way? We don't always use explicit language when we speak. Of course not. For example, if I say that I drove down south for a week, do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, you do, but I didn't say that I was in South Carolina on a boat on Lake Kiwi. <laughs> Tried that. Still got the bruises. And you know what, though? It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. I made my point efficiently and appropriately. I said I went down south. Obviously, it implies a bunch of things, doesn't it? I had to get in some kind of a vehicle, didn't I? I mean, it's not Star Trek. So I had to get in some kind of vehicle, right? I obviously went to some place to stay. Obviously, there was other things. You know what I'm saying? I don't have to describe it all to you, do I? I went down south. All that stuff's implied. If Jesus Christ says, repent, you're going to perish, the gospel's implied. He doesn't always have to say every bit. 
That's why you should never do that thing where you take Scripture out of context and then create all kinds of ridiculous doctrines on this word or that word. Or you see this over here and you see that over there. You see, in language, when something's implied, it's an accepted convention in human communication that we don't have to use the entire definition every time we wish to describe something related to it. It's funny because sometimes uh, a writer in the Bible or an account of, say, even Jesus will be giving the gospel and they'll only, it'll only use the word repent, like we saw or it'll only use the word faith, for example. Or some other word. But the gospel's always in view. Why do you think any differently about the characters in the Bible, including Jesus, in terms of their language and their use of certain words? That's why we call the Bible verbal plenary scripture. It, it's the whole of it. We're supposed to read all of it so that we understand. And as I've been teaching now for years, when you do read all of it, what you find out is that all of it is the gospel. It's really about amplifying Jesus Christ, the person who said, repent. So remember the context of the passages you read always for so much that is being said is implied. Case in point, up on the board. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. When he said this, it was implied that he wasn't suggesting that faith has no place in salvation from the lake of fire, did he? No lest we postulate that Jesus was a confused individual who trained his disciples, his apostles, with a different gospel, say, Paul, for example, who wrote at length about salvation by faith. And just because every moment that Paul talked about salvation by faith, he didn't, use, he didn't say repent, does that mean we should throw Jesus' words out? Hello? He's making a point in context. He's defending the gospel a portion of it because people would try to chip away at it. Oh no, justification is by works, you see. That's not even an argument about repentance. Repentance is over here, same coin. Repentance is over here. Another topic, same gospel. Got to defend it here, got to defend it there, big deal. But you see, if you're dishonest with your approach to people because you want to accommodate man's sensibilities. You don't want to offend anybody. What you can do is you can go in the Bible and pluck out verses that just say these things. The ones that really aren't offensive to man's flesh. The ones that don't talk about the sovereignty of God. Or as we saw in 1 John 1, standing in front of the sovereign God of the universe and being contrite and saying, oh, you're perfect. You're almighty. You're great. I'm a sinner. And being crushed to stone dust, to being contrite, 
Nobody wants to talk about that. But Jesus said it. If you don't repent, by my definition of repentance, not some uh, salesman, then you're not going to be saved. Hmm. Jesus and all of his apostles were absolutely always on the same sheet of music when it came to the gospel. Um, Jesus and all of his apostles were absolutely always on the same sheet of music when it came to the gospel. They didn't always, I mean, the context demanded something different. Have you ever presented the gospel exactly the same way to anybody? Of course not. You'd have to, you would literally have to read it off a sheet of paper. Hop, hop, hop. I know you got questions, but let me finish my little spiel here. Right? No. No. And neither did they. It's just the context change from account to count. That's what we see in the Bible. The context changed. If someone had a big hang-up with repentance, then, I don't know, Jesus or whoever would call them to repentance. So you get a problem, man. We, we can't go any further. If they were past that and they didn't understand salvation by grace through faith, then, like Paul did, he would explain it. But it's the same gospel, you see? And you can't have Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus Christ is the meaning of the gospel. He is the Savior. You can't have Him and live over here. You can't have Him and hold on to the old life. That's the whole point. You have to despise that thing. You have to recognize what that is. And say, I have no way, I have literally no way of getting out of this. Lord, help me. That's a contrite heart. I have no way of getting out of this situation. I know I'm a sinner. I know you're great. I have no way out of this. Help me. Help me. Save me. That's, that's contrition. That's a repentant heart. And none of the apostles or Jesus were confused about it. You get the point? None of them would have been willing to say, oh, you can keep the self-life and then take Jesus to heaven. Take the Jesus bus to heaven. Just make sure you get your ticket punched before you're out of here. Just say this little prayer. You know. Just make sure you get your ticket punched. But we do know this, that once you are saved, you're changed. And though you won't have a perfect repentance developed in you, completed in you, you will have a repentant heart because that's your new creature. And that's the driving factor behind, like John said in 1 John 1, even the confession of sin. You understand? That's the difference. So Jesus and all his apostles were absolutely always on the same sheet of music when it came to the gospel. It's just that the context changed from account to account. This is why we see elsewhere in the Bible that the apostles went out and preached the same message of repentance. 
to kickstart the early church. Go to Mark 6, 7. Mark 6, verse 7. This is not a novel concept. And it's interesting, very big picture here. If you think about what Paul had to go through, the attacks on justification by faith, um, and then like John, the Apostle John, had to go through with the Gnostics, that whole spiel. Well, we're going through it. Our, the true church of Christ is going through it, I believe, with repentance. That's what I believe. At least one of the major attacks on the gospel is that repentance has been basically cast off. Because it's offensive to man. <laughs> it's offensive to man to stand before a holy God and be contrite. It's offensive. And so the modern church has basically wiped it out. And so you have true pastors like myself fighting tooth and nail day in and day out. And it ain't popular. Look around. Do you really think that the most popular churches in the world are teaching on repentance right now? And contrition? Do you really think that? No. They're playing rock band stuff and telling everybody they're saved. Just come on down. We'll let you pick the guitar. I'm serious. Just come on down. Say, do some cartwheels if you want. And Pastor Nobody over here will put his hand, his filthy hand on you and tell you you're saved. You know what that's called? Satanic. Satanic. Especially when it's meant to raise a whole lot of money for the idiots in charge. Ah. Matthew 6, 7. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics, and he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should what? Repent. And if they don't, shake the dust off your feet. Do you see what he said? Some people be like, Dude, that's just, that, 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 just, that doesn't sound nice at all. No, it really doesn't. That was an insult. Do you get the context? That was an insult. You insult my God, I'm going to insult this city. I'm out of here. I'm out. You guys need to repent. You guys got a problem. We're out. Don't say we didn't come. <laughs> right? But no, do we do that now? No, everybody's like, mm, how can I help you? Let me, let me get on my knees. Let me beg you. Let me beg you to respect the sovereign God of the universe. No, let me not even do that. Let me just beg you to come up to the altar. punching people in the throat. Especially pastors. So-called pastors. I feel like taking them out first. It's disgusting. How disgusting for people to lead people astray. Hey, I did it. So I'd be punching myself in the throat. At least I'm humble. At least I'm honest. At least I'm willing. At least I'm repentant. You think my, uh, 
Hmm. You think my heart doesn't break knowing that stuff about myself? That I've actually had people come through these doors and leave because I, fought, I taught them false doctrines, maybe? That now they're out there meandering around with some garbage in their soul because I taught it? You think that doesn't affect my heart? Are you kidding me? Those are the times I cry. But what are you going to do? We're not perfect. But the best we can do is have a contrite heart, right? And when you have that, God builds you up. And he says, just press on, soldier. Just do it. Just keep doing it. Whatever. If you screw up, I'll pick up the pieces, I promise. It's my battle. I'm the one who saves anyways. You just keep going on. And repent. If you screw up, repent. I see your heart. That's what they did. And I'm, I'm upset because it's like, oh, how dare any of us um, preach the wrong gospel? How dare any of us kowtow to man's sensibilities? How dare any of us disgrace the gospel of our Lord? So, as you can see, the Spirit has a lot to say on this thing. Um, and we have a long way to go, so let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. Thank you for the fellowship. We just ask for your grace and your mercy and your patience as we learn these things and take them out to a world that's just accelerating away from the true gospel of your Son. Father, we just pray for all those, and we pray for traveling mercies. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.